You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Who do you want to be when you grow up? We've all heard the question. Have you answered it? Many people never do. In fact, many people never really grow up. It's scary business. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I've discovered that leaders are readers. And as a listener to this show, you have access as a free gift to any audiobook of your choice, choosing from more than 180,000 titles from our sponsor, Audible. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power, choose the book that you want, download it for free, enjoy it, and keep it forever. Also, you will get a one-month free trial of all of Audible's service. I'm excited to announce that I have created brand new content for you. It is an additional episode, a short one, about five to ten minutes long, and it will appear at least once a week. I call these episodes One Word Stories. Each episode will focus on a word, a common word that we all use, but it may be charged with meanings that are affecting our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. Enjoy these episodes as mini shots of empowerment. Remember to keep your dialogue with the show alive. It enriches everyone. Send your responses, your comments, your requests to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is a woman who took the question, who do I want to be when I grow up? Very seriously. She looked inside herself and first decided who was her authentic self. She courageously stepped into that self and created a career that enriches her life and the lives of many others. She helps mid to large media companies discover, implement, and teach dignity, leadership, and personal power in the workplace. She's created breakthrough strategies for Netflix, NBC Universal, Microsoft, Turner, Warner Brothers, and the list goes on. She even climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. She's gutsy, bold, and bright. Get ready to up your game with Esther Weinberg. Esther, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. 
Thank you so much, Lewis. You know, I have to tell you that I, I probably should carry you around in my pocket, reading that to everybody that I meet along the way. <laughs> that was fantastic. You know, thank you so much. You know, I, I got to tell you, a lot of the, the people that come on my show say that, you know, and my response is, thank you for the compliment. I put it on paper, but you actually created it. So, you know. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, it's so funny because I think that most of us, me included, is that I have such a look forward mentality that to look, be- to look back behind us is not something we do every day to acknowledge how far we've come. And I think that's one of the markers of of the ability to pause. Wasn't it, I think, in the, in the book about uh, Into Thin Air, they said that they had rarely turned around to see how far they had come, which I thought was always a great metaphor for life. Which, which book was that? Into Thin Air. It was, oh, that, it was oh. a tragic story about the climb, climb to Everest, and they were speaking about turning around and seeing how far they had come. And I always think that that's a good metaphor because we often, as human beings, I don't think that we really look back to see how far we've come because it's a good marker to success. I totally agree. And Esther, would you not agree that a lot of people don't even look at where they're going? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, I would agree with that. And, and you know, much. I think there's another factor in when people hear a very um, a complimentary intro to themselves. I think that We've been conditioned, unfortunately, to not blow our own horn. And we really should be blowing our horns very, very loudly and clearly. You know, it's it's funny that you mention that because I often talk about that as it relates to grading your own visibility, that we don't often promote ourselves enough. And women, I have to say, I don't mean to make a gender comment, but women especially have a much more challenging time, and the data shows it too, that they have a much more difficult time to promoting themselves. And I always say, it's not like you're walking around going, kissing yourself and going, look how fabulous I am. But there is a certain marker about taking responsibility for the accomplishments that you've achieved. That's very significant, because if you don't promote yourself, who else is going to promote you? Absolutely. Esther, on that note, would you please ask me what I like about myself? Lewis, what do you like about yourself? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like from the moment I met you. Okay. You know, while we're on this roll, I love what you said about uh, a lot of women don't um, honor their own power. They don't promote themselves. I come from an acting background. And when I was studying voice, one of the most incredible insights I ever read. First time I heard it, I thought it was, what are they talking about? We think of our voices only as physical instruments. And very few of us think about what does the voice say about how we see ourselves? Now, you've experienced, I'm sure, that some women, when you talk to them, sound like little dolls. They sound like little girls, like they're six years old. Mm. And... That's not just a physical trait. That is a psychological conditioning because young women were often told, you know, not to be louder than the man, not to insult the man, not to intimidate the man, or, you know, not to speak up. And culturally, some of them just unconsciously developed these tiny little voices so that they wouldn't be threatening. 
And I remember a voice teacher, this was a woman who used to work with people, and she would get them to actually get deep into their own trauma, recognize what was going on, and release it. And usually they would start to cry. And when they finished that, they would open their mouths and a different voice came out. Well, it's a, I think, God, what you're saying is, is very powerful because, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I talk a lot about dignity. The, the word that you used when you introduced me is that, you know, I look at dignity as trust, respect, and safety in the workplace. But you can apply that also to finding your own voice. Because what you're speaking about is, yes, it's... Um, it can be more applicable to women, it's true, about this very demure, quiet, um, toned-down approach to speaking up. But it does, it is, it is a much more psychological impact, you're right, as to how we project ourselves and what we yeah. say about ourselves. Mm-hmm. But I do find that as work, I mean, if we just talk, if we talk about the workplace, right, and we talk about the fact that, you know, if we've got 50 I think Gallup uh, state of global workplace report from 2017 was talking about that 15% of employees worldwide are engaged and 85% are functioning below their potential. So you have to say to yourself, how is it that I'm contributing to having a voice or letting my voice be heard at work? And then number two is what am I doing to make sure that others are having the ability to have their voice heard? Because sometimes we shut people down in very small and tiny ways, but they have enormous significance. So for example, let's say someone is working on a project and you cut them out of a meeting that they would get valuable information as to the project they're working on. Well, in a way you cut their voice off. So sometimes when we talk about projecting and confidence in the workplace and even presence, we also have to examine how are we ourselves giving voice to ourselves and giving voice to others. Because there is sometimes there's a big disconnection. Sometimes it becomes a blame game. My boss doesn't give me um, an opportunity to shine or this person or that person. But what also are you doing to cut yourself off from having a voice? And then what are you doing to cut others off from having a voice also? No, I love that. Um, it reminds me of another thing I got from a mentor of mine who said that we teach people how to treat us. That's right. That's right. It's very very powerful because you get to really take responsibilities. Oh, you know, I don't like the way I'm being treated. Okay. Uh, I agree with you. Terrible behavior. Now, what what signals are you sending to the world that allows people to treat you that way? That's right. You're inviting, yeah. So I would love to start exploring a bit about your journey to get... See, your voice is very strong. I can hear it. You don't sound like a little girl. So you, you, you've done your work, you know, to, to, to step into who you are. And that's, that's wonderful. Where, where were you born, Esther? I was born in good old Brooklyn, New York. So I, you know, it's funny, I don't live in Brooklyn or I don't live in New York anymore. I have family there, but um, it's sort of like you can take the woman out of New York, but you can't take the New Yorker out of the woman. So I'm very proudly a New Yorker and a Brooklyn New Yorker. Well, I understand thoroughly because I'm a proud Bronx guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you understand. You understand very clearly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, growing up in the Bronx enabled me to really do uh, get a lot of great work in 
in film and TV because I play a lot of wise guys. So. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. You sound yeah. like a wise guy. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> so who influenced you the most, you would say, when you were a child? You know, I had, I grew up in a very strong family and with very strong roots. I was, um, I was the daughter, my, my dad was Israeli and my mom was first generation American. And so in my lineage had a lot of adversity, overcoming adversity. So my, on my mom's side, I had grandparents that escaped the Holocaust and came over when they were young on my dad's side. I have family that goes uh, uh, back seven generations and more in actually Palestine when it was dust. And I remember the story that, this is a story I'll never forget, my father's grandmother, so my great-grandmother, Dina, and she was an Orthodox religious woman. She lived in northern Israel or northern Palestine at the time. And she was married to a guy and he was extremely religious and he would go off every week and study in caves which sounds odd, but it was quite normal back then, I guess, in northern Israel. And my grandmother decided one day her kids started getting this disease and they started, her kids started dying. I mean, it was really terrible. There was a plague in Israel. Her children started dying and, and they had no, they were very poor and they didn't have money. And so she decided that she was going to start a business, which, you know, in those days, a woman did not start a business. And so she started an entrepreneurial business where she was a merchant and she, took the donkeys up to Damascus in the middle. I don't even know how she did it. I can't even imagine uh, every week to trade. And then she came back and finally she got to a place where she divorced her husband and remarried someone else. And you have to understand in the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, a woman does not initiate a divorce. So for the fact that she could have achieved all of that, plus of a successful business, remarry a man that she was profoundly in love with, was I have to say that those stories greatly influenced me as a child. I knew that there was some hidden strength, even though I didn't realize it all the time, but that there was some profound strength just from my lineage, just from my, my parents are extremely strong people, very loving, but very strong. So that was always an anchor for me as a kid. That's powerful. I love that story. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you had this, uh, incredible role model in your um in your family that's that mm -hmm. that is that's wonderful and yeah i'm sure it had con contributed a lot to helping you find your voice and uh and summon up your courage when you needed it yeah yeah you couldn't you couldn't really be it's funny you couldn't really be a wallflower i think there were times when i was a kid where i was a little shyer but it just was um it's kind of like, I think it was just in the walls, you know, as the culture, because <laughs> there's cultures in your home too, just like there's cultures at work. And I think there was just an inherent culture that you speak up, you stand up for yourself, um, you do what you can to discover your voice. So if you can't figure out what that is, eventually you will discover it. So I think that was always embedded somehow along yeah, the way. Probably was. I like what you said, you know, that you were a little shyer. I was thinking, Esther, for you, how would shyness manifest would it be that when you looked at a person you didn't like and you said to them shut up you didn't <laughs> you you just didn't yell it that's all you said it softly <laughs> oh, that's a riot no so, i think that when i was a kid i um i you know i wasn't 
I wasn't the class clown and I wasn't, you know, the most vocal person. And I think the way that I, um, and I actually, when I think back on it, I always see myself as a shy kid. I think the times that, and my mom would say this too, she would say, you know, the times when I saw her, I saw her as a really shy kid. She said, but the times when you weren't shy was when you performed. Cause I would act as a kid, I'd be in plays and I would sing and I, I don't have much of a voice, but I would sing. And so um, she said, the second I saw you on stage, you were like a different person. So I don't know where that came from, but I know as a kid, I was, I was shyer. I wasn't like the first one to make friends. I wasn't very overt or extroverted. I think I grew into that or maybe mm. just a, a, uncovered that about myself as I got more courageous in life. Mm -hmm. And did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, it's a funny thing because I had a few dreams. First, I thought I was going to be an oceanographer. <laughs> then I thought I was going to be a pediatrician, which is funny for a woman who's not that great in math. So I thought I was going to be an oceanographer. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. And then I thought I was going to be, um, you know, when I was a kid, you'll remember this, Lewis. You know, there was the good humor trucks. That came oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That sold the ice cream. Yeah. And so I thought I'd be I'd drive the good humor truck, which I thought was the coolest job on the planet because then you'd drink you'd eat ice cream every day. You know, that was just <laughs> what a job. But I think I thought um then I graduated to thinking that if I could wear a suit and be in corporate America, that it would um that somehow that would really um that would really give me power and authority and um, you know, looking back on it, it's it's actually rather funny. But, you know, I thought that somehow that would be, you know, give me power and authority. But I think in general, if you had to boil it all down as a kid, I think I really thought that I was going to do something that was creative, that was unusual, where I could express more of myself and where I'd be helping people. I think there was some edge of that. I think that was the oceanographer zoologist or you know pediatrician side of me um as well as the suit side of me you know if i could do something where i could be in service to others i think i mm -hmm. thought that, that would be a pretty cool job but i didn't know what that any of that meant you know as a little kid i didn't know what any of that meant well i'm really glad that you uh grew beyond the good humor truck right. and, uh, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> yeah. and how, how did you begin working for disney it was a funny thing you know i um when I was in college, I was one of this, I was lost about what I was going to specialize in, you know, like, uh, like many other young people. And I was close to deciding on a major. And I remember I was, I had, I decided that instead of taking classes that I thought my parents want me to take, I thought that I'd start taking classes that I wanted to take. And mind you, my parents never put pressure on me to do it. I think it was just me. And so I took this class about media I remember the head of the instructor in the class, a professor, said something about that there's these group of people called public relations people or publicity people, and they really work with the media to create and develop storytelling. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I never even heard that existed. And so I went off on my trail and explored the the road of publicity. And so that became my profession. I worked for, when I graduated, I worked for an agency that specialized in, in media. And so that's how I started getting to the media business. And then eventually after that, I worked for Fox television in New York. 
And then I was, I remember at the time I was going through a, a life changing moment in my life. I was getting divorced and a, I knew that if I told one of the guys that I was working with, one of the executives who was a mentor of mine at the time, I knew if I told him that I was getting divorced and I was trying to figure out the next stage of my life, that somehow I was going to wind up in California. Now, the reason why I thought that was because the woman that was the head of Fox Networks at the time was recruited by Michael Eisner to head up Disney. Somehow mm -hmm. I knew in my gut that I would wind up in California. So it, it, then it just all conspired. The moment I did tell him that I was, I remember we were in a baseball field in Minneapolis, Minnesota, actually in St. Paul. We were filming a show called, I think it was about the St. Paul Saints. It was called Baseball Minnesota. And I remember I was sitting in the bleachers and I told this guy that I was getting divorced and I didn't know what the next chapter of my life was going to look like. And then he did exactly what I thought he was going to do. He's like, yeah, we, we have to talk. We have to talk. You know, you got to go talk to this woman at Disney. And, and I think there's a job for you there. Okay. So that's how it all unfolded. And then it just moved from there. Once I called her, let her know that I was interested. I didn't even know if there was a real job. Then it took several months for it all to come into place. And then Disney recruited me to do publicity for them, for their, for their networks, for their own networks out in California. Mm. Mm -hmm. Which was a great job. It was a great job. Did you work uh, directly or indirectly with Eisner? I didn't work directly with Eisner. What happened was Eisner was heading up everything. And he hired a woman that would head up Disney Channel at the time. And he had mandated her to create all these different networks that would grow the Disney brand and, and expand the Disney brand. So at the time when I got hired, there was only Disney Channel. And it wasn't, it, people couldn't widely see it. It was only, I think, in 14 million homes. And, and they had really strategically shifted it so that everybody could see it, you know, as we call it, a basic cable network. And so, and so I was part of the team that was brought on to help build that brand and then create lots of others. So at the time, then we launched Toon Disney, which became Disney XD, and then another network called SoapNet. And, you know, now it's just mushroomed into this great franchise. But no, I never, I never personally worked with Eisner, no. Mm. Now, um, you enjoyed that. It would had a, it's, um, it brought you some satisfaction, gratification, mm. but you made a decision to leave. Why was that? It was interesting. There was there was a few pivot points. There was I remember once I was sitting in a meeting and it was the time of the dot com boom. This is going back many years. It was the time of the dot com one of the dot com booms. And we were sitting in a in a leadership meeting and there was a I think there was a mark there was a management consultant in the room. And and the CFO says a third of our workforce is leaving, has left. And I thought, what? They're the workforce. Why? Where are people going? And the head of sales and I were just floored. Couldn't believe it. And no one really cared. I couldn't believe that no one cared except for he and I. They weren't, they said, we're Disney. It doesn't matter. We'll still always, we'll still always have staff. We'll always. And I thought that was just, what, what, what happened? We have to explore this. But no one was really interested. And then I remember a mentor of mine said to me, you know, there's lots of change happening here. I don't know if it's in alignment with me. So I'm negotiating my exit strategy. He was in New York and he said, I think you should do the same. And I really adored this guy um, very much. Like I said, he was a mentor of mine. And so 
I thought, well, maybe I should start exploring this. Is this the place that I can want to continue to be employed? Because the mandate had changed a lot and people had changed a lot. And so I decided that I was going to go. And then what happened was that the confluence of things is the day that I walked into my boss's office to leave, she wanted me to leave too. So it was just, you know, the perfect, I guess, the perfect confluence of things. And mm. so that's how it all happened. It wasn't it wasn't very glamorous in any stretch of the imagination, but it, it wound up more like, you know, I want you to go. I want to go. I want you to go. Okay, let's figure out how I go. So it became more of that. Hmm. It sounds like um, when you asked this, when you told this, this guy that you were getting divorced, that you were intuitively aware that something was going to initiate change for you. Yeah, and I think also what happened was that we were going through, the company was going through lots of change. And sometimes it's it's an interesting thing because, you know, we're always a genius in the rearview mirror. But when I look back on it, I see that I was, I didn't quite know how to handle all the changes. And I think I was under a tremendous amount of stress and I was getting sick. And in fact, my eyesight, I remember I went, I went to go to an eye doctor because I was losing my eyesight which was the strangest thing. I mean, that's how stressed out I was. And I didn't know how to manage it. And I was really young at the time. I didn't quite, you know, it wasn't all coming together for me. And so when even the notion about leaving, I didn't know where I was going to go. I mean, I thought initially I thought, well, you know, I've been doing publicity for a long time. I should just start my own company. Why don't I do that? But you know, <laughs> that isn't oftentimes the best idea. I mean, it's the most sane idea because you're building on your current skill set, which makes sense from a monetary perspective, but it doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily for what you want to do for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Now you talk about two phases of your business journey. Can you, mm -hmm. elaborate, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, say two, but maybe there's three now that we're talking about it. So what happened was when I, after when, when Disney finished, I, I thought I was going to start a publicity, I was going to cr create a publicity firm. And that idea quickly went out of my head because I realized that I had really no interest in that. Not because I didn't like what I was doing or I didn't like the people I was doing it with. It just wasn't, I didn't, there's something that's no longer started to resonate with me anymore the way that it used to. And so I was kind of lost. I didn't know what, I, what the heck I was going to do. So I went away to Asia for five weeks. I came back and I thought, okay, that's it. I'm figuring it out because you're right. I don't want to do this anymore. But you know what? This is a great transition. So I remember I had, I had discovered just accidentally the whole business of leadership development and developing leaders and building leaders and training and executive coaching and I had hired an executive coach, which I'd never done before. I didn't know who these people were. And, then, and I remember within a matter of two weeks, I was signed up to be certified as an executive coach and go to school. I remember in the beginning, I thought it's really important because I came out of publicity and marketing background that I brand and really channel you know, the brand of what my company is. So I started doing that for a while. And then I would say a few years into it, uh, once I started gaining success and traction, I had this real longing to do human rights work. I couldn't explain it. It just kept calling to me and calling to me. And I remember I was leading my business here, but really wanting to work more abroad. So there were a couple of years where I took a couple of assignments. I had worked in Botswana for a couple of weeks. 
um, with the Department of Geological Survey. I had done some work in Israel for a month um, on um, with a school on conflict resolution. And then finally, I thought I really want to actually live in a country that's emerging from conflict. And I want to do training and development and organizational work. And maybe that's really where my heart is. Maybe it's not necessarily in corporate America. So I, I, I got a, a, this amazing consulting position at an organization in Uganda. It was the largest human rights, child, I'm sorry, largest child rights membership based organization in all of Africa. And they wanted me to come in and do an assessment of their organization as well as child rights in all of Uganda. I mean, it was an amazing job. So I said, yes, I picked up and completely closed up everything here and I moved to Uganda and I ran my business virtually out of Uganda. So from eight at night until one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning, I would work on media work. And then from eight o'clock in the morning until six, seven o'clock at night, I would work on children's rights work. I mean, it sounds like a crazy schedule, but I was beyond happy, beaming, 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 very, very happy. So, and that schedule wasn't necessarily every day of the week, but, um, and then, so that was probably one very significant change and chapter in my life was when I moved to Uganda. And I thought I was going to live in Uganda for the rest of my life. That was it. Packed up, leave. That was the end of it. And then I had, I was doing an assessment for the U.S. government on a AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis project. They had called me to come in and assess how effective the organization was and how effective their structure was. Anyway, so I was working on this project, which was really complicated. And I remember I was standing on a veranda in northern Uganda in a place called Gulu, and I was typing on my laptop. And I just kind of got this intuitive hit, time to come back to the United States. And I thought I was crazy because I was like, what, what, what? No way, no way. I thought I was moving to Uganda. This is not happening. And then I had remembered a commitment I made to myself when I moved to Uganda that because I really started listening more to my gut and my intuition that I would really honor it. So I picked up and I moved back to the United States and all my friends in Uganda thought I had lost my mind because to them, I was staying and I was really staying put. So I, um, so I moved back to the United States and that was really chapter two. I, um, I really had to build up my business again because my business really had shrunk because at the time people weren't really doing a lot of business abroad virtually. Now it's, you know, it's commonplace as drinking water, but, um, but back then it wasn't. And so I had, my business had gone down and I really had to rebuild. And what I realized when I was in Uganda is that it's not that I wanted to do children's rights or human rights work. It's that I really wanted to further this concept of dignity in the workplace, every workplace all around the world. And that was my mission. And so how could I best achieve that? And I realized that being in Uganda wasn't the best way that I could achieve it. Coming back home, working here, building back up the business and doing it in a much different way would really make that vision and mission a reality. So that's that's the long and short of it. Well, what's wonderful about it is that um, these are bold moves. Like I said before, that you are a bold person because, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to do that. When you said, like, moving, I, I, I'm going to move to Uganda. I said, really? Okay, <laughs> good. Uh, uh, I mean, that you know, just, uh, you know, going to a place that has a totally different culture, 
uh, it's totally foreign to you, but you just did it. And then mm. you weren't afraid of change. So in the process, you were developing your your narrative, your story, which a lot of people never find because they won't allow themselves to face those moments of um, disruption, you know, because mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of disruption in that. And, you know, you were following your instinct. That's, that's mm-hmm. really, really powerful stuff. You know, before when you said, well, I accidentally found, I was in, uh, started getting involved with leadership. I don't know. I don't believe there are any accidents at all. It probably wasn't <laughs> accidental. It's true. At all. So now, how do these two phases of your business journey relate to your personal journey? You know, it's, um, I, I would really say the one thing that's been common through my life has been um, the journey, not the destination necessarily. And not for that. I, I remember once, I remember a long time ago when after, this was after Disney, I had listened to a PBS special with Bill Moyers and a guy named um, oh, Joseph Campbell. Do you know Joseph Campbell, Lewis? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. he's, he's the great, um, uh, he's given us everything we understand about myth. That's right. That's right. And I remember when he was talking and he talked about this whole concept of the hero's journey, which at the time I thought was very fluffy because I thought hero's journey, you know, okay, you know, what the hell does that mean? That seems very frou-frou. But what he was really talking about was the human condition that when there's a change that's incited in our lives, how we go about it and what's our mindset around it that leads us to the next, to the next, to the next. And I thought that was one of the most powerful concepts I had ever heard in my entire life. I mean, it was, it was deceptively simple, but it was really powerful. And I would really say that that pretty much encapsulates my personal journey because Look, when you're an entrepreneur and you own your own business, and no matter how much you grow that business, well, I think that a certain scalability, I've, you know, when I've worked with people, this is less of what I'm about to say. But when you're an entrepreneur, how you are being as a person is your business. It does. It shapes everything. If you're, if you're in a place where your mindset is wonky and you're not able to have a growth mindset, then your business is going to reflect that. So I think that there's, and I'm not a very big believer in it's, it's not personal, it's business. I actually think that that sentence should be eradicated from our vocabulary because everything is personal. It really is. It's how it's our mindset about it. That's really what the distinction is. So for me, there's, you know, my business is very personal to me. Um, my journey, my personal journey is very much magnified at work. You know, I find that if I don't continue to build and develop my mindset, which I think is the secret to everything, then I find that I it's very difficult for me to have any level of success. And because I'm in a service business, it's very difficult for me to shepherd other people through it. So as healthy as I can make myself, my mindset, that is very complementary to how my business grows too. Just is. Totally agree because mindset is story the mm-hmm. story that the story that you're telling yourself about you and the world that's right starts to shape everything and 
when you talk about the hero's journey, I mean, that is the core, the heartbeat of all human storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's um, one of the things that excites me a lot. In fact, if that element is missing when you're telling a story, mm-hmm. the story is usually flat. It's usually, it has a ring of inauthenticity to it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's great stuff. So were there times in your career when you felt you couldn't live into your authentic story? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Of course. I mean, there was, <laughs> I mean, when I, uh, I'll give you a few examples. I mean, I, uh, when I was at Disney, I was totally lost. I mean, at, towards the end, I was lost. I didn't know who I was. I knew I couldn't stay anymore, but I didn't know who I was becoming or what I wanted to become. I think when I, um, as I've grown my business in the early stages, I think that I wasn't even certain at times what I wanted everything to be authentically. I think I, I took a lot of opinions of what people told me, but I thought, oh, they probably know better than I do. And so it was very difficult for me to hear myself at times. It really, really was. Because, you know, um, your intuition speaks to you in whispers. It doesn't speak to you, you know, it doesn't scream at you. And so I think it was, it was, it's been challenging to live authentically because there's so much preconception around it. You know, first of all, what does that even mean? Because authenticity, the word of it has gotten so diluted today that even to say that sometimes I don't even know what that means. And then there's a fear that if I live more of what I want passionately then I'm going to sacrifice. I'll sacrifice um, what I really want. I'll sacrifice financially. I'll sacrifice the family I want. I'll sacrifice, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So I will say that it is, it's been part of my journey, like I was talking about before, is to understand what my voice is. And that's taken a lot of diligent effort. I'm talking about practically sitting down, journaling and journaling and journaling and taking a look at it and journaling some more and having a really great support system and team around me of advisors who now don't advise me like, you should be doing that, you should be doing that. It's more of what are what do you want? What is it that you really want to achieve? What's your vision? How do we look at it? And then how do we create more practicality around it so that it's not amorphous? I would say that that's I mean, I think one of the most challenging things in life is to continue to say, who am I? What do I want to be? How is that measuring up to where I am currently? And then actually creating action to change things. Because lots Mm. of times you're actually not living very authentically and it will, and you think it'll take a lot to change it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for that. What is the dignity zone? Hmm. So I have to tell you that in all the years that I've been working, like over over 20 years that I've been working in leadership, the number one thing that I have seen that if it was inserted into the workplace that would make an absolute difference in any everything, and it's a surprising key ingredient, is dignity. And I'm telling you, if dignity was inserted into organizations across the world, it would make a big difference. And what I mean by dignity is for people to feel trust, respect, and safety. 
I mean, think of it. It's like an ideal workplace. You feel appreciated and respected. It's safe to express your point of view without feeling like someone's going to come after you. You're supported by your boss and peers and everyone's aligned. That's possible. So that to me is what, and the dignity zone means, is when I create that for myself and then I also do what I can to create that for other people. Hmm. Are you familiar with the, uh, you probably are the, the entrepreneur Donnie Deutsch? Yes, of course. When, when I was reading his book, um, Often Wrong, Never in Doubt, which I highly recommend. It's brilliant and it's quite funny too. But he created a culture like that. And it was one of the secrets of the success of his business. In fact, when clients would come to his um, office, they were amazed at the environment that was so unlike that rigid corporate environment they were used to. And he made people feel very um, accepted, honored, trusted, just like you're saying. And and Mm -hmm. the results were astonishing, you know, what they got out of people. I mean, think of it, it's very, it's actually a very pragmatic notion because it's like what I was saying before. If you've got Gallup, which is one of the leading research companies in the world, if they've got a state of global workplace report that says that 15% of employees are engaged in their jobs, and 85%, can you imagine 85% of the people that you employ are functioning below their potential? It doesn't, it, it doesn't even make sense. And then the added, there's another um, data set from the attitudes in the American workplace that shows that 80% of workers feel stress on the job. So if you put all that together, it's, you know, you, you have a loss of dignity at work because there's greater workloads. There's differences in generational expectations, the speed, technology, all that weighs into it. So just imagine if you if you injected trust, respect, and safety, made it a guiding principle, not an easy thing to do, but really be fierce about it, those numbers could change. And if you went from 85% of people functioning below their potential to even 80 or 75%, that would be an enormous shift in productivity and profitability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so true. Now, how do you feel women can step into their leadership in business with dignity and personal power? Well, first of all, they have to stop apologizing. You know, we, we were like the, you know, it's like the apology disease. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I, I really do believe that it's time. I, I think we're in an incredible age for women. I, I don't mean to lean on the Me Too movement, although I think I would be incredibly remiss if I didn't mention it. But I think that women are at a breaking point. They want to be treated with respect at work. They want an environment where people can trust each other and feel safe. So I think that now... If women stop apologizing, they start asking more for what they want in a way that is unapologetic. Because what most women that I know in the workplace that have issues of confidence, I mean, I'm working with a woman now who's who's a graduate of Ivy League schools, who's got pedigree like you would never imagine, who is so incredibly wise and smart and gifted and talented. And she has issues with confidence. And Mm. I remember when I first met her, I thought, how is this possible? But 
the moment and what's been more incredible is for the last few months seeing us work together to her gaining her voice, owning her presence, speaking up, uh, feeling like, and what was interesting is we had a conversation with her boss about her owning more of her voice and promoting herself more. And he thought that that was um, very, he didn't say it this way, but I think he thought it was very self-promotional, but, but that's not what we meant. We meant how does she actually demonstrate to people that she's had a powerful voice in big strategic initiatives, which she had. I mean, she's made such marks in the company and made such strides to how the company actually earns money and how productive they are. It's staggering. But she's her own best kept secret. Mm -hmm. So now she's less that. So I'm saying if there is a way, and there is you know, a way for people to promote themselves, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So number one, let's say every week for a woman, or actually a man, anybody, have a, a point, like a must-make point that I call it, of something that you want to share with people that magnifies or emulates things that you've accomplished for that week or something that you want people to know. So when you go to lunch with people or you have coffee or you meet someone in the hallway and they say, how are you doing? And most people go, oh, I'm so busy. Oh my goodness, I'm so busy. Which is the worst thing to tell people because they can never get a glimpse of what you're really, who you are and what you're wrestling with and what you're overcoming, much like your podcast. And so if you have one point that's kind of like your talking point for the week, then you can shape it. You can, you can move it into conversation where people get a sense of who you are, what you're up to and what you're creating. And sometimes when I tell women, I say to them, all right, let's, let's roll this out. For example, let's say I go to lunch with you and I, and you say, how are you doing Esther? And I say, you know, I got to tell you, I got this, um, my boss came to me with this project and I was really befuddled. I just, I didn't know how to tackle it. It was keeping me up. I had sleepless nights. And then out of nowhere, I had this aha moment and here's what I decided to do. And I'm blown away at how successful we've been. So I looked at this woman I was sitting at lunch with. I said, would you think I was promoting myself? And she goes, no, I wouldn't. I would think you're telling me a story. I said, well, that's what you need to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's good. That's very, mm -hmm. very good. What is the one behavior you would recommend that people change to become more successful leaders? I think the number, and we talked about it today too, I think the number one thing that we need to put more of an emphasis on is our mindset. There's been some great books written, there's lots of neuroscience behind it, but I think like a muscle that is not exercised and not focused, it atrophies. So we are sometimes our worst enemies. We put ourselves down. We are self-critical. We make our, ourselves small when we're actually quite big. And so our mindset, not, I'm talking, and I want to be clear, I'm not talking about making everything rosy. I'm talking about flexing a muscle to creating a mindset that is powerful, that's positive, that's engaged, that doesn't allow yourself to get sucked into negativity and drama. It really does change things. And there was a great book written by Marshall Goldsmith about, I think it's called Triggers, where he talks about the things that trigger us. And I think it's actually fairly revolutionary. And there's, there's also, 
a great book called Emotional Agility by Dr. Susan David that also talks about emotional, that, well, the book is called Emotional Agility. But the, and they're all basically saying that if we notice what triggers us, if we're in tune with that, we can reshape our mindset because we're triggered all the time. That will make us more effective, more stealth, more productive. And I love the fact that there's so much neuroscience behind that today. But those that attribute, I think, if we focused on a mindset and also minding our triggers, I think that you would see a colossal change in how people communicate with each other, their level of performance, their level of confidence, their level of output. It would be revolutionary. I totally agree because um, I began consciously working on my mindset in 2006 mm -hmm. by investing in personal development mm -hmm. training. Uh, I haven't stopped and uh, I've, I mean, it has, a tr has had a tremendous impact on my entire life. Tremendous. You know, it's a funny thing because salespeople understand this, that people buy, and I know this is going to maybe sound a strange a segue, people buy, and I put that in air quotes, people, just think of it. You go, you go to buy something, a car, anything you, that's of utility to you. You're going to buy the person that's more relating with you or more factual with you, you know, whatever way that relates to your style, but you're going to buy from someone that you like. You're not going to buy from someone that you don't like. You're not going to buy from a jerk. You're not going to buy from someone who's nasty. I remember a client once said to me, you know, they don't have to like me. They just have to respect me. And I said, no, they have to like you. I'm sorry. They have to respect you too, but they do have to like you. Yeah. And so um, the person that's more likable tends to be the person that radiate something from themselves and that comes from an exercise in working on your mindset working on your triggers and really demonstrating that in everything you do everything you do i mean it just so happens we're talking about work because we spend more time at work than anywhere else in our lives mm -hmm. totally totally agree now what would you say the men and women can do today to have an honest, productive dialogue in the workplace? And I ask that because, you know, you referred to the Me Too movement. There is a lot of tension and fear in the workplace these days. Well, I think there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of tension. And I mean, I, I hear this sometimes from men that they'll say, I don't even know what to talk to women about anymore because everything is so off limits. I, I really think it comes down to this point that, you know, we don't, I, I think that we don't have a focus. What I mean by that is a lots of times, I mean, just think of what you've seen in the workplace. There's been a lot of bad behavior, but it comes from the behavior not being dealt with. So for example, let's say someone takes credit for your ideas Let's say, I mean, we could just go down the road. Let's say um, you uh, don't agree with someone else, so you actively ignore them and encourage other people to do the same. These little seeds, I call them, that's the stuff that contributes to the bad behavior, that magnifies bad behavior um, that you see today. Now, I'm not talking about sexual harassment because I'm not a sexual harassment expert, but I'm talking about bad behavior that I sometimes get involved with when people will say this CEO is bullying people, and so we have to we have to make sure we course correct him because he's too valuable to the company. Well, I'm sorry, 
But what were the things that the CEO was doing when he was a manager and a coordinator that allowed him to get to this place where now you're dealing with it in a much more magnified level? So I think that if companies were more fastidious in saying, we're going to create this concept of dignity zones within our entire corporate culture, we're going to transform our workplace in terms of how people really treat each other with dignity and having conversations, then I think that the workplace would transform. I do think that we're not necessarily handling things at the seed level is what I would call it. Instead, we're dealing with the effect, but we're not dealing with the cause. If we were really dealing with the cause, then some of what we're seeing, I'm not saying all, but some of what we're seeing could be mitigated. Now, once again, I'm not talking about sexual harassment. I'm talking about bad behavior too. Now, you in your work, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but you go into companies and help them with this kind of shift in culture? Yes, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I come in and I'll all do a few things. One is we need a baseline of what is it, what does it really mean? Because a lot of people now are educating people about respect in the workplace, but I don't know if that actually goes far enough. So I come in and we do lots of different um, training and development. There's five programs specifically that I have there. I come into companies and create a baseline of what does it actually mean to create a, a culture that operates in this dignity zone? Where are we off? And where can we start making small but big wins? Because the, that kind of work will take time. But there is things that you, there are things that you can do more immediately where you can have a, a quick shift for a greater win. For example, if you just start having teams, I mean, I remember I was brought in a few weeks ago to work with a team and they were newly formed, and newly formed, I mean, over a year, they had never had a conversation about how they want to operate with each other, like basic, like rules of the road. How do we want to talk to each other? How do we want to, if we have conflict, how are we going to deal with that? Once we started having conversations about it, it changed the dynamic of the whole group. That is really, really wonderful stuff. You know, now, it's a funny thing, it's a funny thing Louis, because sometimes we think that it takes a Herculean effort when it really just takes a decision. If like this team, the leader who I really applaud, she decided, you know, we haven't had the kinds of conversations that we need because what I'm seeing now is people are going around each other. Um, People are more combative. um, They're not managing change well. And so what are the conversations that we're not having that if we had them could start to make a big difference? And so that's where we started from. I agree that making a decision uh, can shift a lot. And isn't it also about just knowing what questions to start asking? That's right. That's you know? right. Yeah, because if people don't know what questions to ask, and um, they're going to be randomly asking questions and probably getting bad answers. Well, even if, I love what you just said, because even if people start, you know, if you created, started to create a culture of curiosity in your organization where people were taught to really be in a place of inquiry. Hmm, wonder why that's happening. Or, hmm, I wonder why she was motivated to say that. I wonder if they thought about what the impact of that was. Without judgment, you'd also see a very different level of environment and engagement from people. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, there was a book. I don't know if it's published anymore, but it's uh, The Magic of Asking the Right Questions. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful because... We 
I mean, just on a personal level, something bad happens, our default question is, why did that happen to me? That is the worst question to ask, because you will get an answer and it will be a negative one. Right. <laughs> and and it, will, it creates a story or a narrative in which you're the victim. And mm. if you just shift that and say, hmm, how can I make this great? Mm -hmm. And stay with that question. It's amazing how empowered you become. You know, there was a concept several years ago um, that was created by David Cooper Ryder called Appreciative Inquiry. And it was the, the notion that if you look for good stuff, you will find good stuff. And it was the notion also that if you look for good stuff, you would find it. And also the stuff that wasn't going so well would take care of itself because you're focusing on what was right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of what you're talking about also. So yeah. I agree with you. The questions are more important than the answer sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to set up a question that's going to, to bring a positive answer and uh, a creative path to solutions as opposed to uh, a lot of things that you can just gripe about. Um, and so appreciative inquiry and was there is there a book about that there is um there's the power of appreciative inquiry i think but i think that's actually by a woman named diana whitney that's also quite good um i don't remember the name offhand of david cooper writer's book but if you look him up online you'll see his body of work and also a woman named diana whitney she wrote the power of appreciative inquiry which is quite good itself and david you said cooper cooper writer oh, okay I was going to ask you, what is your favorite book? But you've mentioned a lot of them already. Yeah, I would really say that my, my top ones, if you want me to give you a few, maybe yeah. a couple that I didn't mention. So I would really say, so one of my favorites is Emotional Agility by Dr. Susan David. I also love Immunity to Change, which is another absolutely fantastic book by uh, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. Um, and then I also love Thanks for the Feedback by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. And then um, there's also The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, which I absolutely adore, too. So those are some of my favorites. And The uh, Code is by, um, uh, what's, Vivi, yeah. Vishen uh, Lakiani, La I think. Lakiani, I think yeah. I think that's the way you pronounce his name. Yeah. Yes. I bought it after hearing him interviewed on the, on the Genius Network. Mm, must be yeah. wonderful. Yeah, he is. He's quite wonderful. Do you have a favorite quote? Hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple. I think that I love this one by Wayne Dyer, um, where he says, what we think determines what happens to us. So if we want to change our lives, we need to stretch our minds. I love that quote. I think that's... I, I love that quote. I also love the one that teach people how you want to be treated, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. or treat people how you want to be treated. That's uh, the golden rule is also a steadfast one. The one by Wayne Dyer, I find that it's uh, it magnifies what we were talking about before around mindset. Yeah, he was truly one of the great thought leaders of our time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He sure was. He sure was. So who would you say is your ideal client? I would say as a as a company that is about 10 to 20 million and above that's within the media and technology space that is wrestling with some of the issues that we've been talking about today. You know, how do I indoctrinate 
this whole concept of dignity into my workplace. And really specifically, you know, we, I, we work with, um, you know, the media companies and tech companies and also their leadership teams too. You know, we indoctrinate this concept of dignity throughout, you know, from, you know, the frontline employees all the way up. But lots of times also what needs some tweaking, should we say, happens at the more senior executive levels. So we do mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, this question wasn't in my uh, list of questions, but I want to mm-hmm. ask it anyway. because It's been on my sure. mind. What prompted you to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Mm. So I remember when I was at Disney, there was a woman that had turned 50 and she had climbed Kilimanjaro. And I thought, oh man, that's really old. And I, <laughs> and I, I'm not going to wait till, till that old age before I climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And, um, it was just always, it was simply always on my bucket list to do. And then last year, early last year, I had made a decision that instead of thinking about having a bucket list, I'd actually start living things that I've wanted to do. And what was so funny about it was I told my coach that uh, my business coach that I wanted to do this and that I wasn't doing anything to further it. And she really held my feet to the fire to make sure that I, that I went. I think that it was the intention. I thought I would get on a mountain and I would, I don't know, dream about my life or think about, where I'd been and where I want to keep going, you know, something very personal and spiritual, but it was really a, um, I would, I would say that Kilimanjaro became more of a realization of more of who I am and more of what I have the ability to do, which I don't know if I had realized it in that way before. And so it was a personal, uh, dream of yours. You did it Mm -hmm. and it impacted, your life and your work and the people that you interact with get the enrichment from it as well. Yeah. The other thing I realized was that I alone now, look, I made the decision to go to Kilimanjaro and I walked it and I climbed it. And yes, yes, yes. All that. Okay. Great for me. But I would tell you that there is no way on this planet. I would have climbed that mountain without the team of people that I climbed with. When I was on that last night on summit night and we were walking up that mountain, I mean, it was mind over matter that whole night, but unless I had this guy in front of me that kept telling me I could do it and a young guy behind me that kept telling me I could do it. So the guy behind me was a guy that was on the trip with me, a guy named Jack. And then the guy in front of me was a guy named Moses, oddly enough, (laughs) quite biblical, who was um, a guide on the trip. And had I not had the two of them really encouraging me, Knowing that I walk this world always with someone in front of me and someone behind me, man, I, I would never have gotten up that mountain. Wouldn't have happened. Wow. Have. How could you miss with Moses in front of you? <laughs> I mean, when he, Ironic, got, isn't it? <laughs> when, when he got to the top, did he suddenly receive the tablet? <laughs> the Red Seas, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's so funny. wonderful. So if you could wave a magic wand, Esther, and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? Oh, it's what we've been talking about all all day today. It's dignity, 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 dignity for people to treat each other with trust, respect, and safety no matter where you are and what you do. Even standing in the grocery store and waiting online for something, 
Mm -hmm. uh, when you're on the phone with a customer service representative. I mean, no matter what you're doing in your personal and business life, treating people with dignity, man, that I think that would make the greatest difference in everything. Yeah, it really would. Especially today. It really would. Where do you see yourself in five years? Um, hi, you know, I thought a lot about this. Um, probably it, my intention in the next five years is, frankly, to have gotten further with this whole concept of dignity inside of companies. More people living the concept, more people thriving in it, more people empowering other people with it. That's really what I see myself in five. I mean, really of delivering on my personal mission and vision. And now how can people contact you, Esther? Ah, it's easy. They go to mindlightgroup.com. That's the name of my company, Mind Like Your Head. Light like a light bulb and group like all of us, mindlightgroup.com. Easy. Beautiful. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should should have asked you? No, I, you know, my goodness, we've covered so much today. It's unbelievable. No, I think that we covered, you know, it's a funny thing because I realize more and more, it's like when we started this conversation, Lewis, that how much the arc of your personal journey, how much it impacts your professional journey and your professional journey impacts your personal journey. And so I, I thank you for the gift of really seeing that so much more clearly today. So thank you for that. I received that. Thank you. And any final thoughts for our storytellers today? No, I would just say that when when you go out into work and you're caught up in whatever you are for the day, you know, to ask yourself the the real key question of what what impact can I make? Because dignity starts with you. You can't force the executives and leaders around you to create a workplace and a culture of dignity. But you can start bringing dignity to your own life, to your work, and to all of your relationships. True. That's, that is wonderful. Thank you. You have um, contributed a lot today. It was fun. And uh, you've enriched the show and the storytellers listening. Thank you so much, Lewis. I really enjoyed this today. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending your time today with me and Esther Weinberg. I say that at the end of every single episode. Don't think for a moment that I don't mean it. I value your time. I value everyone's time. Because time is the most precious commodity, the most valuable asset that any of us has. So if you choose to give your time to me and my guests, I honor you for that. And I trust that we are giving you something to enrich that time and the time that you will spend after you listen to this podcast. Esther shared many, many gems today. She has a wonderful philosophy on life. Be inspired by her sense of courage her willingness to make big changes in her life. When I think of a person who will just pick up a comfortable life in North America and take off for Uganda, that takes courage. That takes strength and trust. Be inspired by that for sure. She also is obviously a 
voracious reader. She suggested many, many wonderful books. By all means, take advantage of the offer from Audible to the listeners of this show. You can download for free an audiobook of your choice, choosing from more than 180,000 titles, and have one month free service, everything that Audible offers you. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. I would love to know what you take away from the show, specifically today. What did you get from Esther? Were there any aha moments? Was there one particular thing that she said that made a shift for you, that made you light up to stop to pause, to think, and perhaps say, I'm going to apply that immediately in my life. Let me know. Send your answers to loseclub, L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. In terms of thinking about something for next week, of course, the dominant theme in Esther's work and in her life, is dignity. And I'm sure that most of us will nod our heads yes and say, yes, yes, of course, you know, I have dignity, I believe in dignity, and yet, I challenge you to really spend some time alone, quietly, go inside, and take a really close and honest look at your own life and say or ask, is there any area where I am not fully honoring my dignity? Are there people in my life who could benefit by honoring their dignity and can I in some way help them? And when you get clear about that, make an effort to reach for that higher level and to Share this sense of dignity, first with yourself and then with others. And always begin by using the catalyst of this question, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.